0: Well, good evening again. Um, our text this evening is 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 through 5-4. If you would like to take notes or follow along, there is a sermon notes page in the bulletin. Again, our text is 1 John four thirteen through 5-4. Pay careful attention for this is the word of God. By this we know that we abide in him For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help today. As we open up your word to us, give us faith to believe your promises. Empower us by your spirit to obey your commands. And give us the confidence and assurance that only your word can bring. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I am going to describe for you one of the most terrifying moments of my life. I was nearly 18 years old, and I found myself in a, uh, in a courtroom waiting to plead my case before a judge. Now, I had no lawyer To represent me and there was no jury to ensure a fair trial my fate depended entirely on the mercy or lack thereof of a judge now what great crime did i commit to warrant such a troubling state you might wonder a speeding ticket You see, apparently there is a Missouri law that if you get a speeding ticket within so many months of your 18th birthday, you must appear before a judge to give account for your transgressions. So going back to my story, I checked in and took a seat, waiting for them to call my name. I began rehearsing my story what felt like hundreds of times each time becoming less and less confident that it would make a difference. Every few minutes, one of the judges would read someone's name at random, and the whole room would drop silent as we all tried to listen in and hear if that judge would be merciful. Now eventually, one of the judges called my name, My heart started racing, and as I got up and walked to what felt like a death sentence, I prayed, God, if you love me, make this whole ticket situation go away. Now, I want you to notice what I had just done. In that moment, I was not the only one on trial. Rather, in my mind and in my heart, I put God on trial. And I was the judge. And I would rule God loving or unloving, depending on how this whole ticket situation worked itself out. Now, in my case, the judge was merciful. And I was able to pay a little bit of extra money to make it all go away. And in turn, as a benevolent judge, I ruled that God was indeed loving, he was exonerated of all charges was a good day for both me and God. We both walked out of that courtroom declared innocent. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm here today to tell you that you are not God's judge. God is not on trial, and his love is not in question. Rather, God has proven his love once and for all. And in our text today, we see two definitive proofs of God's love. So if you're taking notes, you can look at that sermon notes page, and you'll see that we're going to approach this text from three points. The first two are proofs of God's love, and the last is the response. So two proofs of God's love and the response. Proof one, the Spirit, God's gift of fellowship, verses 13 through 15. Then proof two, the son, God's gift of love, verses 16 through 18. And then the response, spirit-empowered love, verses 19 through following. So let's begin with the spirit in verse 13. Let's look at verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now, notice the simple assumption behind that text, namely that you can, in fact, know. Well, what can you know? Well, you can know that God abides in us and that we abide in God. Now, you might have guessed by now that that word abide is very important to understanding our text. It shows up two other times in this short passage. Now, some translations may say remain instead of abide, and there is certainly an idea of endurance that is meant in this word. But I would argue that in this context, the word abide is actually better because in John's mind, this word often conveys an intimate fellowship. We see this in particular in John's gospel, where this word is often used to describe the close relationship between the persons of the Trinity. Take, for instance, the gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 10. The gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 10. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells or abides, it's the same word there, dwells in me, does his works. So there we see that the Father abides in Jesus and Jesus in the Father. We see this word also used with reference to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 1, verse 32. This is uh, uh, describing Jesus' baptism, where John the Baptist says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained or abided on him. So there the Spirit is used with reference to this. The Spirit abides on Jesus. Now I want you to stay with me here for a moment, because it's going to get a little heady, but I promise it'll be worth it. Lest we be confused, brothers and sisters, we worship one God in three persons. These persons are distinguished, but never separated. The Father is not the Son, but the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, according to these passages. Now, as one pastor rightly said, the three persons exist as one God without crowding out the others. They overlap and indwell one another completely and totally without in any way compromising the personal distinctions between them. Okay, why am I telling you all of this? After all, the Trinity can seem rather academic. Why is it important that you know this? Well this is important because it shows us that God is not stoic and lifeless. He is not a cold statue or an absent father. No church this is your God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They know each other and love each other. They glorify one another and delight in the other They have loved each other from all eternity without any needs, wants, or lacks. They are infinitely happy in one another. They abide in one another. But you see, our text takes a surprising twist because our text is not speaking about God intimately fellowshipping with himself. No, in our text, God abides in us. Well, how can we know that God abides in us? Well, according to our passage, we know that God abides in us because he has given us his spirit. You see, our assurance that God lives in us does not come from our actions or feelings, but it comes from God's action. God has given us his spirit. Just as the Father fellowships with Jesus, so we have been brought into the fellowship of God by the Holy Spirit. Well, we can say then that the Spirit is God's gift of fellowship. Well, this brings up a natural question. How do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? Well, verses 14 through 15 give us our answer. So let's look at verses 14 through 15. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. You see, in verse 14, we learn that the apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus. But they didn't just keep their testimony to themselves, but they proclaimed it to us that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. God's Spirit lives in the person who believes the Apostle's testimony that Jesus is God's Son, the Savior of the world. You see, the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is not that you can speak in tongues or that you can foretell the future. No, the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is that you have faith in Jesus Christ. So to sum up so far, the first proof that God loves you is that God has given you the gift of his fellowship, the Holy Spirit. And if you have faith in Christ, you can be assured that you have God's Spirit abiding in you. Well, in verses 13 through 15, we saw the Holy Spirit, God's gift of fellowship. Now, in verses 16 through 18, we see the Son, God's gift of love. So let's look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So here we see that faith in Jesus's atonement, that is in his substitutionary death and then resurrection, is faith in God's love for you. We see that with that little word, so. That word, so, connects us back up to verses 14 through 15. The logic goes like this. We believe that the Father sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. So, or in this way, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Here, John is saying that if you want to know whether or not God loves you, all you have to do is look at the cross. We see this all throughout scripture, but let me give you a few other verses. Take John 3.16, for instance. For God so loved the world, or maybe better yet, for this is how God has shown his love for the world, that he gave his only son. Or take Romans 8.32, which describes God as he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You see, God's great proof of love, his great gift of love was his crucified son for us. But I want you to notice the personal nature of this love. God didn't just give Jesus for some random person out there in the world, but he did it for you. Jesus died for you. The Father loves you. You might be thinking, well, well, hold up there. You've got this all wrong. God doesn't love me. If you only knew the things that I've done, or if you only knew how unlovable I am, you would not say that God loves me. But I say to you, look at the next part of verse 16. God is love. Why does God love you? It's not because of some lovable trait in you, but the love that is in God. It's not because of who you are, but who God is. God loves you because God is love. Well, what does it look like to actually believe that God loves you in Christ? What we see in verses 17 through 18, that faith in God's love gives us confidence before him. Let's read verses 17 through 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love here john compares two different types of people maybe these were people he knew perhaps even in his own congregation as i describe them to you i want you to think which one am i like now both of these men they're thinking about judgment day The first man whom John describes as being perfected in love, he has confidence when he thinks about the day of judgment. However, the man who has not been perfected in love, he fears punishment. Well, what is the difference between these two men? Well, the man who fears punishment is like a man who looks in the mirror, feeling deep shame for the wrongs he has done. And then, when he lifts his eyes to the heavens, he shudders. His faith reminds us of the faith of the demons, who, though they believe that God is one, they tremble because they know that that one God is devoted to their destruction. Now, the second man, the man who has been perfected in love, He's similar to that first man in that he knows his sin. But here is where he is different. Before he lifts his eyes to the heavens, he looks to Christ. He remembers that though he disobeyed, Christ obeyed in his stead. In this great exchange, he has traded his sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan preacher, models for us this type of man. Richard Sibbs said Often I think to myself, what am I, a poor, sinful creature? But I have a righteousness in Christ that answers all. I am weak in myself, but Christ is strong, and I am strong in him. I am foolish in myself, but I am wise in him. What I want in myself, I have in him. He is mine, and his righteousness is mine, which is the righteousness of God-man. Being clothed with this, I stand safe against conscience, hell, wrath, and whatsoever, though I have daily experience of my sins. Yet there is more righteousness in Christ who is mine and who is chief of 10,000 than there is sin in me. Let me say that last part again. There is more righteousness in Christ who is mine than there is sin in me. Now, when this man lifts his eyes to the heavens, he no longer fears. But he has confidence because as verse 17 says, just as Christ is, so also are we in this world. In other words, because of Christ's work, when God looks upon us, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Which man are you like today? You see, being perfected in love is not about sinless perfection. It's about faith in the love of God that gives you perfect standing before him. It's looking to Christ as your mediator, the one who stands between you and the Father. If you find yourself more like that man who fears judgment, I plead with you. Look to Christ. Believe that his righteousness is yours. Believe that there is more righteousness in Christ than there is sin in you. Believe that God loves you and accepts you in Christ. For the perfect love of God in the face of Christ cast out all fear of punishment. Brothers and sisters, what can we say to this kind of love? That God has given us his spirit, his gift of fellowship, and his son, his gift of love. How ought we to respond to such a love? Well, verse 19 says that there really is only one response, and that is to love. Let's look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. The response to this love is to love. We love God, and we love one another. But I want you to notice here that this is a different kind of love than the world knows. It's not the kind of love that says, you scratch my back, and then I'll scratch your back. Or, you love me first, and then I'll love you first. No. No. This is a love that is rooted in Christ's love for us. Christian love says, He loved me first, so I will love you. Now let's get real practical here for a moment. Husbands, should you do the dishes because if you love your wife now, she might reciprocate that love tonight? This text says no. Rather, remember that Christ first loved you when you had nothing good to offer him. He gave you his righteousness when all you had to give was your sin. He gave you his spirit when all you had to offer was your rebellious spirit. Your love tank is full because you've been loved with the perfect love of Christ that cast out all fear of punishment and rejection. Therefore, husbands, when you do the dishes, or whatever it is that you do to show your wife love, do it because God has loved you perfectly. And this is an opportunity to love him in return. Now, wives... When your husband loses his temper and everything in you wants to put the boxing gloves on, remember Christ's love. For you deserved God's hate, his wrath. You deserved his boxing gloves, his raised voice, and his cold shoulder. But instead, you got his outstretched arms, his loving embrace, his fellowship in love. Do not wait to love your husband until he loves you first. No, love your husband because Christ has loved you first. Brothers and sisters, this is Christian love. And this love is so distinctive of Christians that John says it's actually one of the evidences that the Spirit is in us. We see this in the latter part of verse 16. John said, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now here, when he's speaking of abiding in love, John is saying that just as the Father, Son, and Spirit dwelt together in perfect love before the foundations of the world, so we should dwell together in love for one another. This is the mark that God abides in us, that we abide together in love. Now at some point, someone might object. They might say, well, hold up here. My love for God has nothing to do with my love for my brother. And John then responds by saying, to love God, you must love your brother and sister. Or to put it negatively, it is impossible to love God and hate your brother. John then proceeds to give four arguments for the impossibility of loving God and hating your brother. Now, we are going to go through these very quickly. The first argument is the argument from easier to harder. We see that in verse 20. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, we have a similar saying to John's argument here, out of sight, out of mind, How easy is it to love someone who you know you're going to see tomorrow, but how difficult is it to love someone well who you know you won't see until Christmas? You see, it's much easier to love the person in front of you, the one you can see. But here John's saying, if you don't even love your brother who's right in front of you whom you can see, why should we think that you would love God whom you can't see, the much harder thing to do John's second argument is the argument from one command we see this in verse 21 and this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother here John makes two statements the love for God and love for brother and he says that this is one command To break the part of the command that says love your brother is to break the first part of the command, love God. In other words, these are one command. It cannot be separated. John's third argument is that the love for the father necessarily includes love for his children. We see this in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, many of you may know this by now, but my wife and I, we've become quite close friends with Gavin and Cassidy Poe over there. We have quite a bit in common. We're all from Missouri. We have similar church backgrounds, and we're all members here at Oceanside. And we love uh, little Henry. But I, I want you to imagine for a second if for some stupid reason I told Gavin, Look, Gavin, I think you're great, but you should know that I really can't stand your son, Henry. What do you think that would do to our relationship? That would probably end it right then and there. Why? Because Gavin loves his kid, and to hate something that he so dearly loves is to hate the father himself. Now you see, our passage says that the father, that love for the father necessarily includes love for his children. And anyone who who believes in Jesus is a child of God. So brothers and sisters, I want you to look around the room. You are seeing God's children whom he loves fiercely. The same God who has loved you has loved those sitting in the pew next to you. Therefore, love one another. John's last argument is that loving God includes obedience. We see this in verses 2 through 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Here, John's argument is quite simple. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. And we're reminded back up to verse 21. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, if you are like me, this call to Christian love can feel quite weighty. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. You're telling me I have to do something? I have to love? That's hard. I don't know if I can do that. I feel like you're placing me under the law again. Well, brothers and sisters, if you feel the weight of Christian love, you are precisely where John wants you. Because now, as he closes out this text, he's going to come to you like a loving pastor And he's going to take the burden off your shoulders. We see that in verses 3 through 4. Let's read these together. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. See, that language of overcoming the world brings us back to Jesus' words in John's gospel where he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus was not seduced by the forbidden pleasures of the world. Not even for one millisecond did Jesus believe Satan's lies about God. When faced with death or disobedience, he chose death. The world could not control him, so they crucified him. But even then, he rose from the grave. He has truly defeated the powers of Satan and conquered the world. But you see, our text says not only that Jesus has overcome the world, but that we have overcome the world. Listen to this. This is how John is going to take away our burdens. We have overcome the world not by perfectly obeying the law, but we have overcome the world by being born of God and by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, does this faith that overcomes the world mean that we have to muster up a bunch of faith in our own strength? No. It's not about the size of our faith, but the size of our God with whom we place our faith. You see, by his obedience in life and in death, Jesus has overcome the world. And now the Spirit applies in us what Christ has done outside of us. Therefore, Christ's victory is our victory God's command to love is no longer burdensome like it was before. Because in Christ, we have already overcome the world. You're not fighting for victory, but from victory. Furthermore, the Spirit has given us new life and faith in Christ, empowering us to do the things that we could not do before. So, brothers and sisters who have been given the Spirit, God's gift of fellowship, and the Son, God's gift of love, by the power of the Spirit and in light of Christ's victory, love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fellowship of the Spirit and the love of Christ. Help us now to love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.